in my office here on the sixth floor, there's this nondescript door that's like an emergency exit heading down two floors. My key card here lets me in here on the fourth floor, which is our top retail floor of the store. <laughs> it dumps me out right in the back of the laundry department, which can be a little weird. But here we are, we're coming out on the floor. Hey, have you seen Justin around? Yeah. All right. Hello, hello. Hey, Hi. Justin, hello. let's sit, sit down. down. Okay, yeah. Great, great. yeah. So when I was walking in here, mm -hmm. They told me that this one jacket that my wife should have, you have and it's in a dress room for a customer. It is so, and I thought Did about it. Did you sell it to someone besides my wife? No, she's coming in right now. I'm going to try it on. But hey, but you know me, though. The customer comes first. I mean, my wife's a customer, but I mean, let's sell to a customer first. Yeah, you don't need to sure. hold it for her. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to episode one of the Nordy Pod. My name is Pete Nordstrom, and yes, I'm actually one of them. I get asked that all the time. Are you really one of those Nordstroms? Yes. I'm a fourth generation member of the Nordstrom family, and I actually happen to be president of Nordstrom, and I also sit on the board of directors. And as of today, I get to add podcast hosts to my resume. I think one of the things about doing this Nordy Pod thing is to give some insights into the Nordstrom company and how we do things around here. There's the family, there's the retail part of it, which is interesting. But the most interesting part is getting to talk to some really fascinating people either involved in our business or in some way have either inspired or motivated me. And a lot of what I've done is kind of doing this without a net. And while the marketing team has supported me, they've not really been along the journey for any kind of editing process. So what you'll see is that it's interesting, it's funny, and it, we don't always nail it. But I intend on featuring those experiences and those conversations, warts and all, and sharing it with you guys on the Nordy Pod. But uh, this is not going to be a highly polished and scripted thing. And ultimately, to make this thing really work, we want to bring you into it, too. Later, I'm going to talk to you about how you guys can engage with me directly. And who knows, we may feature one of your questions or experiences on a future Nordy Pod episode. I appreciate you being part of this and listening in to episode number one. It's going to be an interesting journey. I'm clearly not a professional podcast host, but I have the great good fortune to be exposed to so many interesting people, and we're excited to share those stories with you. So in our first episode, you're going to hear from one of our customers on maybe not her best day in one of our stores. We were up in the kids department and my two-year-old just looked at me and started panicking, going, mommy, mommy. You will also meet one of our very best, a homegrown hire who grew up right here in Seattle and has some incredible insight into our business. My best days at Nordstrom isn't about the volume. It's about how you made somebody feel by the little things how you made somebody's kid feel or making somebody feel pretty. Like, I don't sell clothes, I sell a feeling. But first, I want to introduce you to a longtime friend, an extremely successful fashion business titan, and some might say competitor, Mickey Drexler. You might not know his name, but Mickey Drexler is a total legend in our business, and I want to tell you why. He's had a long, storied career. He really is kind of the original disruptor of our business through his beginnings in department stores, then being at Ann Taylor, and particularly when he was at The Gap, where he really made a mark and changed the face of retailing forever. Uh, you're also going to learn about during that time how uh, Mickey reluctantly joined the Apple board and ended up advising Steve Jobs. He went from there to J. Crew, where he took a brand that was well-known and made it super successful again. And now he's working with his son on a new project called Alex Mill. He's an amazing guy. He's got a great story to tell. You know, and the cherry on top of all of it is at the end, Mickey gives me a little bit of advice about how we could be doing better here at Nordstrom. So here it is for your listening enjoyment. Are we ready? Is this it? Uh, this is such a weird 
thing. I mean, for us to be, I, you know, we're, we're friends, we know each other, and here we are, like, sitting across from a table with microphones in our face. So I, anyway, I just really appreciate you doing this. No, that's I fine. Mean, just, I am not a professional interviewer, so I feel like I should apologize. No, those front. are the best kind. All right. It's great to see you, first of all, in person. I mean, it's been, what, 18 months or Too two long years? for all of us, I think, you know. I mean, so here we are in New York, and you think about it. I mean, this store we opened up four months, I think, before the pandemic wow. even hit. So we've never even really had the opportunity to take advantage of a physical space here. And for me to be able to interact with people that I know in New York in our place. We so- opened our store here, by the way, at Alex Mill, two weeks before the pandemic. And then that was that for the next, what? Two years or whatever. So what's it been like for you kind of operating through COVID time? I kind of expand on that a little bit. It's, you know, we all had to live through really unusual circumstances with no visibility about where it was going. Right. So what, what's it been like for you, particularly because you have this new kind of startup business that you're trying to nurture and grow? Mm. Well, you know, you kind of move forward no matter what the times are like. And personally, I've been doing this for so long. I've had in my lifetime a number of COVIDs. They were not (laughs) called COVID, but you hit a wall, uh, things look bleak, but you don't let anything hold you back. You do what you have to do to survive. It's like no other thing I've seen in terms of stores empty, shipping, uh, there's no business at a time. I didn't go to the office, and this is one of my own pet peeves now. I was out of the office for two winters in a row, and I think most people didn't go to the office. What, so what I, was that like for you? Were you doing the Zoom calls at home, that I, whole I was thing? living in Miami for the winters, and I didn't realize what I missed, frankly. Because, you know, I was on the Zoom, and I would say this for companies today, uh, there's a lot of companies not back at work. I, I, I don't know if you guys are back at work or not. Well, we're starting to. I, I've been in the office, but there's really not many people there. Yeah. We haven't really opened that up yet. Yeah, and for me... It wasn't a huge decision because in the fashion business and the product business, it made a huge difference being there in person, not just fashion, spontaneity, creativity, mixing with each other. You're kind of alone out there with Zoom. And uh, I am personally very much against people not coming to the office. Is that kind of like a culture thing or is that just a practical thing about the effectiveness of your business? Both. Um, For me, I've always, as someone just said to me, uh, you know, you're old school. (laughs) I said, I might be old school, but I need to bounce off other people. I need to be there. I need to chat. I need to hear other people and what they're thinking. And every day you feel an idea coming or you see it. I think the right way to run a business is to have people working together. Well, you know, one of the things that really impressed me or made a big impression on me is I think the first time I came visit you when you were at J. Crew. And I meet with all these different kinds of people in our industry, and often it's they've got some office tucked away from everybody else, and they're separated from everyone else for whatever reason. You were, like, right there in the middle of it. I mean, it was just like you had it set up that way intentionally, I'm sure. But to your point about creatively working with people and kind of the serendipity of bumping into people and all the spontaneous stuff that happens, can you talk a little bit about how you came to think that's the best way to run a fashion kind of business? Well, I started doing it right from the beginning of my career. Ann Taylor was a smallish company, and I had a glass office, which was good. I moved to Gap, and you know it was an office building, and I felt very cloistered on the sixth floor of two buildings overlooking, uh, I'll never forget, I went from 57th and 5th to uh, looking at uh, 280 Highway, the cemetery, and the airport. (laughs) And I would say, what the hell am I doing here? I grew up in the Bronx. I'm not a suburb guy. So (laughs) I moved my office into a little glass-enclosed tiny space. It was in the middle of the gap floor. You know, there's a separate building for Old Navy. But the accessibility is critical because I always say a CEO works for all his associates or her associates. Because who can get things done more quickly and more effectively than the so-called big boss? Mm -hmm. Uh, So my feeling is I am their employee. And if they see me every day as a normal guy, which I am, being nervous as hell when business gets bad, they don't (laughs) see that part. You know, the part where you're kind of like a duck, you never see what's going on under the water, those feet flapping and all that. But I did it and it helped. Now, fast forward again, when I got to J. Crew, 
the prior person lunch every day in the enclosed office. Place was going broke. And every time I call someone, you get a voicemail. Da, 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 da. So I moved my office and got a loudspeaker. I moved it <laughs> the first week to a table next to my enclosed office. And it was just the right way to be. And I learn all the time about things like that. Corporations shouldn't be corporate. And they should be open. And the big bosses, like yourself, should be totally accessible and someone people can talk to. Now, I admit I'm not easy in being the boss. Some people like to avoid me, but that happens. But, you know, it's a matter of curiosity. You know, I was reading this uh, review that Johnny Ive uh, gave to uh, Steve Jobs, who uh, passed away 10 years ago. I was on the Apple board for 16 years. Yeah, you were there when there was a lot of oh my growth and amazing stuff amazing, happening. At amazing Apple. experience. And I idolized Steve. And Johnny was saying about things that Steve was curious, always wanted to know what's going on, stick to itiveness, never gave up. And product, product, product. Every board meeting Steve had was about the product. When we gathered around, <laughs> we gather around and half the board, woo, wow, we, I have no idea what Steve's <laughs> talking about halftime, so I had to like, woo, wow, we. But he was a genius and he right. did what he did perfectly well, better than anyone. And he and I would meet in the early days. I was there, I think his mission was retail for me and he doesn't give up on anything. I also said he was always the most seductive person I've known. He will not give up and he'll figure out how to get you to do what he wants. Because I said no for a year. <laughs> and then he said, uh, I'll join the Gap Board, you join my board. And I said, you have a deal. Because the Gap Board was not an easy board. And it was, you know, it had a lot of family and a lot of friends from prep schools and not, not my place in terms <laughs> of not my life. Yeah. He joined and was everything he was supposed to be, a pain in the ass, Steve Jobs, he's, that's what he is. And I, I joined his board. We designed together the store. He, at the beginning, used to ask me for colors of uh, the iPod was the music, right? right? Yeah. It was product, product, product. And that was it. But the curiosity of Steve and all that, critical. And you got to be around. Now, the one thing I did criticize him for, <laughs> he wasn't happy with me, is he was in his own world at times. So I said, Steve, we went into a busy elevator. I said, you got to say hello to these people. <laughs> and, you know, I said, you are you. But he didn't appreciate that. But yeah. anyway... If you're there and accessible as a boss, you're going to always have a better company, in my opinion, and people who enjoy the experience much more. And frankly, just listening, uh, I started my career at the big department stores. And I said, after 12 years, I can't do this anymore. I, I didn't like when people didn't say hello to me, the big shots. I always wanted to be recognized, at least hello coming down the escalator. <laughs> so you started out, you were here in New York. Yeah. And you, what were the, it was the Abraham Strauss? I started my career at Bloomingdale's, Bloomingdale's. at A&S, interesting. I worked there for a summer job. They knew me for three months. And then they offered my friend $500 more. Now, I don't want to lie and say it wasn't the 500 because I grew up with, with not much of anything. It was the 500 but it was the idea that my friend was being paid more than me, and I worked for them for three months, and I was pissed off. So how old were you then? When was this? I was 22. So you were like fresh into it. You're fresh work, into and you're, it. This was your, before for, Bloomingdale's. Yeah, I went to work at Bloomingdale's, and I learned a lot. And uh, after 12 years, unlike today, because people are switching jobs a lot, and it's okay, I, I don't mind that. If I see a resume with six jobs a year each, then I'm skeptical. Yeah. I want to see something there with like a little longevity. And I don't care about the resume per se, I care about the individual. So do you, do you feel like you're a good interviewer? I always question my ability to be a good interviewer because you know you, you look at a resume and people kind of tell you what you want to hear. Um, I made a lot of mistakes because sometimes you get fooled. Uh, I remember the two people fooled me a lot. One is actually, I don't want to say going to jail, but he is. <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a story for another day, perhaps. <laughs> that's the co on the on the college scandal. Oh, and no surprise, really. Um, I I'm pretty good at it. It's, I think it's an intuitive thing. It's all intuitive, and maybe because I grew up the way I did, I find fancy resumes. And there's nothing wrong with someone who grew up, <laughs> you know, well and and went to nice schools. 
I'm always like digging in a little there because I went to public schools and went to city college for two years and then I went to Buffalo. I wanted to have an out-of-town experience, state school. And I spent my early years like always, I was very shy and quiet, so you kind of learn about people. Intuitively, you never always think you're right if you say, uh, oh, he must be or she must be very good because they have this title. In fact, I spoke to, uh, I went to Bronx Science, which was very important for me personally. I spoke to the uh, seniors uh, a few weeks ago, and I said, if you're thinking it, it is about anyone you're dealing with, <laughs> whether it's a teacher, a boss. Now, sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong, but, but no, I think your instinct on interviews is really important. And plus, you have to like them and they have to like you. Yeah. You know, for example, I always ask this if I see a fancy resume, because I have a little bit of that edge on fancy resume. <laughs> What's here to impress us versus what do you like doing? That's a good question. Yeah, I love when they say, <laughs> when they tell the truth, it's to impress you or something. <laughs> Man, honesty is an important part of the interview process, no doubt. Right. Hey, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, you, you're well regarded for a guy that's got a great intuition and sense around fashion and style. Tell me a little bit about growing up and what fashion style all meant well, to you and how that informed kind of who you became. It's a really good question because I, I don't care that much about it. Okay, in a funny way. And that question, well, for you, you have it in your DNA, right? Well, yeah, but you know, it's funny. People say, well, you know all this because you grew up around the kitchen table talking about it. I mean, at my house, while that's what my dad's job was and stuff, we weren't talking about selling shoes and everything. I mean, we're talking about basketball or right, my grades course. or whatever's happening. But, but, but you can't fight the DNA either. So what, what <laughs> I'm saying, forget fashion. In my case, I know where my drive came from. My mother was ill. She had cancer the year I was born. So uh, I didn't grow up in a happy household, so to speak. She was in the 50s. Everything was whisper, whisper. My mom was ill. It took her 16 years to die, but always worked right through her last days. And in those days, a lot of women didn't work, but she needed to keep her mind occupied, I think. It was like so was it, was it that, or was, was there a financial imperative that she had to work, or was it more like just that's who she well, was, that's what she wanted yeah, to do? Well, you know, when you grew up in the Bronx and lived in a ground floor apartment, <laughs> it wasn't like my father made a lot of money. In yeah. fact, he worked in a garment center company. In the shipping room, he bought buttons and piece goods from the vendors. That was his job. And he and I did not get along because he wasn't a warm, loving dad at all. I was an only child because my mom got sick. And one day uh, I took the payroll to the office and he was always like the big shot talking this, that, and the other thing, the payroll to the bank. Oh, from his payroll. He worked for a, a, a coat manufacturer. Okay. And so you know. were like doing an errand for your I dad? I was doing the errand. No, not for him, for the, you know, whoever takes the payroll to the bank. Yeah. I know that day they might've been out sick. I always worked a lot oh, okay. because he made me work, which was in hindsight, okay. Yeah. There was no such thing as sleeping late. Uh, but he didn't do it in a loving, warm way. Yeah. Get out of bed. You know. And it's like, how old were you? Like twelve or something? Working? <laughs> yeah. like, where were you? Yeah, I started when well, I started working when I was about thirteen. I delivered yeah. the New York Times at Bronx Science. That was my second job. My first job was sorting towels in my uncle's towel basement. Whatever. So <laughs> clean. There was clean towels for the offices. There were dirty towels for the gas station. And then there was the middle towels. I never knew where they went because they have a few stains, but I had to sort them every night. So I take the payroll. I was maybe 16 or 17 when I took the payroll. And I see he's the lowest paid guy in the shipping room. Destroyed me. Who, your, your dad My was. dad. And I went through everyone in the company. And I was saying, oh my God, he's living the life of fantasy. You know, he was always very well dressed clothes are very important, or image was. My father, he and I went shopping twice a year. And I don't know what it was. It wasn't that it was important to me, but I still hang out with two of my friends from PS76. And they said I was always the best dressed guy in the grade. So I ended up liking style, maybe. And part of it is fantasy. I'll never forget my father bought a car in 1955. It was a Buick and they delivered the wrong color. It was supposed to be red and white. Not that that sounds too appealing today, <laughs> but it was red and cream. I was so upset. I was 10 years old. He couldn't care less. 
So it's kind of the history I had. Plus, I wanted to live a nicer life. Well, so, I mean, you ended up in the retail business. Was it just like, okay, this is a place where I think I can make a better life for myself? Or were you drawn to it because of, again, things like style or fashion? I was drawn to it, I guess, because my first summer job was at A&S in the young men's jeans department. I loved it. I loved the action. And I did that for three months, and I was making $125 a week, which I never made that much money before. It was amazing. And that's when they didn't offer me the same as they offered my friend. And I was very happy because when I went to a company that said fashion's important, Bloomingdale's then, I learned a lot more than I would have at A&S, which was purely a promotional company. But the longer I was there, I just didn't want to listen to people who... (laughs) I was not a good, uh, I listened politely. But <laughs> you I, seem like a polite guy to me, yeah, I don't yeah. know. No, I listened politely. <laughs> For me, I wasn't happy, I'll tell you why. I remember who was getting promoted around me. And I always wanted to admire those that got promoted, not people who put their time in. So you were a competitive very, guy. Very, quietly, very competitive. Yeah. Why, because I grew up with a father who was complaining his whole life about not having a house, not having a business, not having. Yeah. And when you grow up in that environment, you say, I got to get out of here. So you're at ANS and you're at Bloomingdale's. And then what happened after that? Bloomingdale's and I went to Macy's. Uh, I quit after a year. After a year at Macy's? Yeah, a year and a half. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it was a different culture. You yeah. know, culture is very important. It was kind of a, it was a men's culture. And then I went to ANS, my biggest mistake. So why was it your biggest mistake? Well, <laughs> because I really disliked it. <laughs> I mean, the, other, the others were a job. They were, all, they were jobs. Once they become a job, it's no fun. Yeah. And then I was recruited to run Ann Taylor. And I kept saying no, which was really stupid. And I had dinner one night with a friend. He was a big shot on Wall Street, made a lot of money. And he heard my story. He says, quit tomorrow go run a company that you can run as number one. I don't care if it's so a Ant, they, So they were hiring you to be the CEO at Ant Well, first they offered me EVP. I said no. I, I don't know why. Look, I said no to Steve for a year. That was talking about <laughs> IQ. said no to Steve Jobs. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said no, and then Art said to me, take the job. Next morning I called the president of the corporation and said, I'm taking the job. This was going on for a month. Thank God they didn't hire someone else. It wasn't about money at all. In fact, they sold out four months later. It was the saddest day in my life uh, when uh, Allied Stores, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. A nightmare. They bought us. <laughs> and I was working for the bureaucrats, again, you know, really bureaucrats. But I stayed four years. I was running a company. We built it from 25 to 55 or 60 million, 25. And we made it really cool. Now, I saw Brooks Brothers had their own label. And they had very high profits. So you said, okay, we're going to start our own label program. Right. Studio. We called it Ann Taylor Studio. I went to two or three of our biggest vendors. And I said, I want you to do all the goods for us with our label. So how long did it take to become then a 100% vertical where everything was the Ann Taylor label? I would say we evolved it over the next three years. By the time I left, it was pretty much all Ann Taylor label. Because, you know, one of the things when I think about you you're like the original disruptor because you took this idea of how business was done at retail and you know to your point about there's this own label way of doing it not a lot of people did that at this time right i mean there were brands and they sold to retailers right, but they right. they didn't actually do their own retail and so right. all of a sudden you got this thing going then talk about the next chapter well at the Antel- allied stores i had to get out because oh so they were owned by a big conglomerate you're like t- this is not good oh god and <laughs> They all, uh, I got to watch what I say here. They kind of hung out at the Yale Club during the day, the, the team. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't want to say what they do, but, you know. Wait, what and, do they do at the Yale yeah, Club? Right. I don't well, know I, yeah. uh, And you felt the oppression there. You felt when they forced me to, I didn't do it. They said, we want Ann Taylor Allied Stores on all of your marketing materials. I said, no. I try to be nice, but I, I said, it'll, you know, so I deferred it forever, and then I left. But I said, it's Ann Taylor, not a unit of allied stores. Right. <laughs> In fact, my old company, Gap, who I, I have to watch, uh, they were upset with me for something I said, but I love them all. 
But see, they combine all the brands. Every brand should be its own life. It should be its own style. Uh, at Allied, uh, they wanted me to be part of Allied. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> so you had this thing going on. You wanted to work someplace where it felt like it aligned with kind of your cultural values and, and what you wanted to do and the freedom and stuff. Yeah. So you're going to leave this Ann Taylor thing. So what happened? Don was recruiting me. Don Fisher was recruiting me for six months or so. For the Gap. Well, it wasn't for the Gap. I wanted to start a company. So I was going to look for funds, and he was going to fund the company. So did you have a big enough reputation at this point where you could go out and do your own thing and people would fund it? Well, I don't think so. Because <laughs> one thing about Don, he's an entrepreneur. He takes shots. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. He bought a couple of companies. They didn't work. Okay, on to the next. And he was willing to bet the company with me when I got there. Anyway, I said after six months, I said, I can't join you because you'll be bankrupt, perhaps. And then what happens to my funding? And that's where they were headed. He knew it. Really? They were sued when they went public. The place was a mess. And the more I met the people there, the more I said, they don't, no one knows what they're doing here. It's a schlockster company. In fact, I always say this story. In the parking lot in Houston Galleria, I, my, my first week on the job, I didn't know what I was doing in Houston. I parked the car. Well, you were like touring some stores yeah. in your first week? I don't okay. know why I went to Houston. <laughs> <laughs> Underneath every car's windshield was, today only, 30% off gap. <laughs> so someone was out in the parking lot putting yeah. this So mark. I took the sign in. I said, what's going on here? You're running a sale in the parking lot with whatever? <laughs> <laughs> so I said to Don, after, I said, Don, I can't do this because you have too many problems at Gap Corporation. And what does that leave me? So he offered me to move to San Francisco for three years. And he would, if I didn't make it, or he fired me, I could move back to New York and afford to buy an apartment so they were going to give me the difference between my old apartment right. and the one I needed. In the event that you might get fired. Right. So what job did you get offered to go take? President of the company, not corporation. A, a president of Gap, yeah, the, the Ga division. Yeah. A Gap division. I went there. I commuted, for, and <laughs> I commuted and checked in and out of hotels. I didn't know. I didn't negotiate a great deal. I think I had a mediocre lawyer. So uh, I did that. I went home every weekend. It was, and that must have been exhausting. I mean, you had like a child at yeah. home, wife. And Culturally, dad. it was impossible. Impossible for me. Peggy, my wife, can tell you she was a huge partner and great at it. Every day I was, I'd go to work. I did what I had to do. And I went home and I was depressed. I couldn't adjust to living there and the culture. So at this point, was Gap, they weren't a vertical. They used to like sell Levi's and all kinds of stuff. Is that what was going on when you got well, there? Well, when I got there, it was 33% Levi's. And they couldn't make any money, right? They had the 501 thing that they were like promoting well, all the time, They right? didn't have washed jeans. They had rigid jeans. Now, we all <laughs> knew, you know, you took rigid and you put them in the washing machine yeah. before. That. It was like you wear them in the bathtub right, kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. So I went to visit Levi's. They both hated each other. Levi's hated Gab. Gab hated Levi's. <laughs> Even though they kind of needed each other. I'm and I'll sure. never forget. So we did Levi's for a while. I immediately switched to Washed. And they start selling like crazy. And for the next year and a half, the battles that went on, I was changing the company. The stock went from 23 to 12. Don, understandably, was like a nervous wreck. What are you doing? He called me into his office one day. He goes, the earnings are going to hell. I said, they have to go to hell. I got to get rid of the inventory. So you had to mark stuff down and move it oh, out I had and move to, on. You know, we redid 400 stores, refixtured them, painted them. So you had an idea aesthetically what you wanted those 100%. stores to look like. Hired my architect from Ann Taylor. Only because you got to go fast to who can help fix. I hired the head of marketing from Ann Taylor and the head of product from Ann Taylor. In other words, you, you've got, you know, the ship was sinking and I was underneath it all. I mean, oh my God, what's going to happen? Turned around, middle of August, takes a year and a half, like a rocket. So what do you attribute that to? I'll tell you what it was. I always admired styled clothes, really cool, like Ralph, you yeah. know, in, in terms of what he did. Uh, well, very affordable. I felt the world needed good taste, good style, at a more affordable price. So that was kind of the mantra That was internally. my mantra. And it had to be curated. It had to be, you know, I went to see a doctor yesterday. I said to him, where'd you get that shirt? It's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. 
<laughs> he said three people told me today they like my shirt. You know, I always think that like people and they have the crazy tie yeah. and they go, I get so many comments on <laughs> his tie. He goes, but it's not because it's a, it's a great tie. It's because it's a wacky tie. I so mean, it's, I that's said, not good. I said to his assistant, <laughs> Let me ask you something. What are they dressed like, the three people who like the shirt he was wearing? <laughs> I said, Joe, I'm going to get you a nice shirt. What's a nice shirt? A blue or white shirt. But he had all these little checks and polka dots and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, I find that we just we curate and you edit. Did you become kind of the arbiter of the style and the fashion of Gap? Because, you know, most people get hired, you know, particularly these days, to run a company like that. It's more about their ability, their acumen around operations and finance. But you were literally the arbiter of kind of what the style was going to be. Uh, I couldn't do this without a good creative team. But at the end of the day, I sat through every edit and selection of every style in all three companies. I also started Old Navy, started it from brand new, and they weren't so enthusiastic about it. Now it's the whole company. Well, I, I remember the Old Navy thing so clearly. I was living in California at the time, running our business down in Orange County, and people were leaving Nordstrom to go work for this new company, Old Navy. Like, what are you talking about? And like, <laughs> you know, some of our best people, that were really exciting opportunity. Yeah. And you, know, you took that from idea to a huge thing. I went to Chicago, and I visited two stores that were in poor democratic areas for Gap. I spoke to the store managers, which I do all the time because they're the ones who don't filter bullshit in a sense. They tell you the way things are. They said, people love our clothes. They can't afford them. I'm thinking, they can't afford Gap? I then looked up jeans. Our jeans were 35 and above. 80% of the jeans in America were sold for 30 and below. And then I gave 10 people in the company 200 bucks each. I said, you go and come back in a week. I want to hear what you say. So I'm go, go, go buy shop. a bunch of jeans. Go, go shop. shop with this money. And, yeah, yeah, go shop in Kmart, all the discounts, yeah. Target, Walmart, whatever. They came back, and I listened to them, of course, decided at the end of that meeting with them, we're going to do this. Named it Old Navy, and the board didn't like the name. Spent a million dollars hiring, naming companies. And without boring you with details, <laughs> we named it Old Navy. I had to go through this, that, and the uh, other thing. Okay, so all of a sudden this thing's like really successful. And then it becomes kind of a cultural thing. What was that like for you, whether through the marketing or how you guys showed up kind of just in popular culture at that point? Gap became such a I know. dominant force. Do you know what's interesting? I never really felt that because... When you do it, if me, maybe it's just me, I'm always concerned about keeping it up. So like you're living and dying with every, every sale, right. every item, 100%. is it working or not and, working? And, I, and even today with Alex Mill, it's really rocking and rolling. It's going really well, but I worry about it. And people say, what are you worried about? I worry about it doing <laughs> well. I went through all those years of great business. You know, Gap was... I, I think number one in the stock exchange for 10 years. I mean, how much did you, you were at The Gap how long? 18 years. And how big did it go from what to what? 400 million to uh, 15 billion. So it was, I mean, you know, obviously from my perspective as a guy <laughs> who was kind of competing, yeah. with, enormously successful. And it's amazing, even to this day, the amount of people you talk about coming in, you know, interviewing for jobs outside, the amount of people that spent some time at The Gap and that became part of their experience. Yeah. And for me, I like seeing that in the yeah. resume and hearing them talk about it. And it's interesting because, you know, the culture you created and the people that work with you talk about that, yeah. about how you were engaged with this stuff. In hindsight, for me, it was very exciting. But when I think about it, I'd still go home every day worried. I, I, I think, I don't know how you feel with, for me, a lot, too much worry goes along with all this, you know. <laughs> well, it goes with, I mean, when you're, when you're running something, if you're doing it right, you should care about yeah, it and yeah. you should worry. So the gap thing came to an end. What was that like for you? It was a guy to be enormously successful and then all of a sudden, you know, it's not working right. And I'll tell you what happened. It's interesting. I got fired. So that was the first time you'd ever been fired from something? Yeah. yeah. How'd that make you feel? Well, it, it, this is a very interesting story. I had a few enemies in the company I know, and I'm speculating what happened. Because the end of the story is Steve Jobs tells me I'm getting fired. Steve knew you were getting fired before you got fired? Yeah, well, it was a board meeting. Okay. Steve called me at 9 o'clock on a Monday night. <laughs> he says, call Don. You're getting fired in the morning. 
So Don sees, he tells me to leave the building that day, 18 years. And I was stunned. You know, I said, I want to see the board. So I walked in, none of them could look at me, and I said, did I do something wrong? So what did they say? I mean, they had to give you a reason. Okay, we're letting you go today. No. Really? No. So and these he, are people you knew well. Well, I, I mean, well, and some big names, and yeah. no one ever called me once. Wow. Except Don. I, you know, he was my best friend after I was So the, it ends. Don says, can I see you? I said, yes. He says, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have fired you. And this is what, like a couple days no, after no, they the fired next, you? Oh, the, <laughs> the next, next day. day. The morning, <laughs> next <laughs> He said, we'd like to back you in a new company. <laughs> so what happened? Uh, nothing. I'm looking and I'm thinking, first of all, I knew the company was going to turn around. Yeah. But, okay. And it did. It turned around. Like this literally was, this was like months after you this left? This was September. No, a month after I left. <laughs> this was September 26th. I in what year was, was my this? last day, 2002. And within a month, the business got better? Well, I was working the whole time. I was fired early May. I'm not giving up on fall. I worked my ass off. <laughs> I mean, I, what was going through your mind? You know, you'd had all success. You, you got to let go. You didn't feel good about that. I was, Obviously, who I, would? I was furious. I, I was really upset because I didn't deserve it. And the company turned around. The stock went up. The new guy's getting all the credit. That's what yeah. happens, you know. I'll tell you what bothered me most. This is silly. No one called me on the board. I never got a call. To say thanks for taking our company from $400 yeah, yeah, million to right. $15 billion and, and, <laughs> and I went in to see one person I thought would be reasonable. And I said, I just want to say, you don't treat people like this. If I'm going to get fired, you can fire me. But decency and civility and integrity, he wouldn't talk to me. You know, he shuffled me out. Wow. That was it. So you, you had a redemption story, so to speak. Like you, so you ended up at J. Crew. How did that come to be? You left Gap. Okay, time to do something new. Well, J. Crew, I always admired them. They were a company going nowhere, and I signed on to run it. How long did it take you to get that thing really humming? It's usually a year and a half. If you start that day, and I start the first day getting rid of bad goods. That's marking stuff down. And first day, marking it down. We had a disastrous earnings, but that's what happens the first year. And then you kind of warn the board, look, at this is going to look ugly for a year. Well, but I'll tell you what better. happened. The inventory, they understated it because they were telling me to say there's 10 million in inventory. There was like 20 million in inventory. They didn't even know how much inventory they owned. So was it largely the same playbook you'd used before in terms of like a strong point of view around the style and, yeah, and the uh, culture of what you're developing? Higher and yeah, and again, it takes a team. It always takes a team. Yeah. So you've got this new chapter where you're working with your son who's literally bootstrapping up a thing completely from scratch. So what's that been like kind of working with your son and, <laughs> and kind of starting over and, and creating something? How's that been? Working with Alex, we've had our ups and downs as I think kind of goes with the territory. I know you look, you're, you have a lot of Nordstrom's you work with. <laughs> yes, uh, I do. And uh, it has not been easy, but I'm a very difficult, I don't say, people say I'm a difficult boss. I'm, to a degree, I'm his father first, and that makes it more difficult for him. Does it make it difficult for you? Yeah, it does make it difficult. It makes it difficult for me a lot and for him. Yesterday we were battling over uh, Instagram. Theoretically, I know nothing about Instagram because uh, that's not my world, which people I work with say, my son especially reminds me because he <laughs> runs Instagram. He looks at the algorithm, says this. I said, then why would you only sell three of this great sweater yesterday if the Instagram was so great? That's no, interesting. Yeah, and I argue with this all day long yesterday in a sense. Now, I said algorithms analysis is fine, but goods, marketing... I admit ignorance on what an algorithm is, <laughs> but when it starts to run a company, it's, that's it. Yeah, you know, Mick, you talked about what it was like growing up with your father and the influence that had on you, and so now you have a son, so how has that really shaped your relationship with your son and how, and now that you're working together, how you interact with him? At the end of the day, we love each other. During the day, at times, like yesterday, the Instagram disagreement we had, he asked me, to please leave it alone. And you know, on certain things, I just have to leave it alone. I don't know how to do that. 
and I have to learn how to do it better. And he was listening to, <laughs> he was kind of, a fellow I used to work with, our Italian agent was in last week, and Alex wanted to know what I was like 15, 10 years ago. And Alex sat there listening, and he said, your dad was a very difficult man to work with. He was very demanding, but if you did it right, that's what he wanted. He, he was just demanding on himself first, and then on everyone else. I think with Alex, I have to learn to let it go at times. Mm -hmm. I have a very hard time letting things go. I don't know if it's called obsessive, but I've learned that and we're working on it. Plus, you know, when I, when I see his child who I love like crazy, it's, you know, that's the most important thing. Yeah. So storied career for you, you know, amazing, such kind of a legend in the business. And it's been so much fun for me to get to know you. But from your point of view as a merchant, like who do you think out there is doing it right? Like what, what either retailers or brands or something do you get inspiration from and feel like, you know, they're, they're doing great? Gary Friedman, my friend Gary at uh, Restoration Hardware, beyond anyone has done what I have never seen anyone do. And I knew Gary. We, we got to know each other when he was 26 and a store manager at Gap. So he calls me his mentor. And I say, Gary, you've outgrown me. You're my <laughs> mentor. Because now he's the CEO yeah, right. of now, yeah, right. Restoration Hardware. I mean, he's doing amazing. So of everyone out there in terms of taking a business and inventing it, wow. Okay, so Vicky, so, you know, we're battling it out in the department store industry that's gone through so many changes. And in some ways, I'm at the real shakeout of who's going to make it, who's not. And like, what input would you have for me about how you think we could improve and, well, and be, you know, yeah. the most dominant departments or most relevant departments. Well, store. you are today, but what, well, I said this to you two years ago. You remember the breakfast that we had on Central Park South? Yeah. I said to you, you mind if I say this? Go for it. I said that if you don't own your own product long-term, then why would I shop at Nordstrom? I think Nordstrom's should build the most powerful brand. I would have a mission to do that because Nordstrom's is a very, it's a classic company. I mean, you sell normal, I say normal clothes. <laughs> I would build a Nordstrom's brand. That's the future. Why does that feel like an advantage or the future to you? Because if you don't own your label and you let your vendors own it, you know, it's how I always felt in a department store business. What do I own? I, if, I, if I were looking for a job, I would consult. <laughs> but uh, no, I think how do you do it? It's, it's a mission that you're on, you've got to have a great collection of clothes or of items. Yeah. You can easily, you're paying that extra markup and this year, God, the freight costs, it's oh. killing all of us. So look, you could do whatever you want to. If you have hundreds of people there, fire half of them, I hate to say that because you don't <laughs> fire people. We, we, may not, we may not go with that, but, but yes. Yeah, no, but you know what, you take one department and make it fantastic. Because Nordstrom's elicits a loyalty that no one else does. Because the family thing is really important. So, Mickey, like, what kind of still motivates you? I mean, you're still so passionate about what you're doing, so you wake up every morning, like, what really motivates you to stay engaged like you are? I would say it's my hobby. It's a challenge, it's like a puzzle. Every single day I go to work, my mind is working really hard at trying to figure things out. And I love the challenge. I think it's fun, and, and I also feel an obligation now at this stage in my life, to provide a place for people to work and have fun. If I don't do that, who's gonna do that right now? And I explained that to Alex. I said, Alex, I'm here while I'm here and healthy and all that stuff. I wanna create something that becomes a place where people can be and make a living and make money and do all that. In other words, employs people in a very positive way and provides a future. And I'm kind of in a hurry to do that. So that's what drives me. And I do like, I like the action. Yeah. Well, I, I could never sit home. And, you know, <laughs> I, I got that impression. Yeah. Hey, look, thanks so much for uh, taking some time with me. I, I really admire you. And uh, it's just great to be able to just talk about the business with you. Yeah. And I appreciate that we have that relationship. I love thanks it, so much. Pete. You're a good person and a good friend. And I'm, I'm really happy to be with you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Now, the only thing I didn't know about Pete is he has a rock band. See, that's right. Yep, I know. I heard today. You heard? You just learned that today? Online, yeah. Oh, you yeah, online? Yeah, we, I said, show me one piece. That's interesting. 
As you might imagine, we get a lot of feedback from customers here. But I think what you might not realize is that we get it directly. Um, I get sent all kinds of emails, I get calls, I get texts, and we respond to all of those individually. And over the years, there's just been this amazing buildup of stories and examples that we like to use all the time around here, I think to help tell the story about why the customer is first. The other thing is, we don't have an employee handbook or a set of rules that allows everyone to anticipate every situation that may come up. We talk about people using their best judgment and being in the moment and of service to customers and being there to provide solutions. You're gonna hear a little bit for here from a customer who uh, found herself in a predicament and she needed some solutions. And it was really kind of great how our people came to the rescue. Hello, Jody. It's Pete Norris from Colin. Hi, how are you? Uh, you know, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for um, taking my call and agreeing to be on our podcast. You know, I, I get all kinds of letters and calls. And when I saw yours, I mean, maybe it's because I've got kids that are kind of young and I, I can relate to your story. <laughs> I was like, no, that's pretty charming. So if you wouldn't mind maybe talking a little bit about this experience. Yes, I took my two and a four-year-old to the store and thought, oh, well, we're just going to be here for a few minutes. I'm not going to take my bag in, which had all like, you know, extra clothes or diapers. And we were up in the kids department and my two-year-old just looked at me and started panicking. Going, mommy, mommy. And I looked over and she was just <laughs> dripping. <laughs> <laughs> a dripping poop oh. and she just like I don't know what uh, she doesn't normally do that ever she had just like kind of finished potty training so I, I thought she would do better <laughs> and the gal in the department just started grabbing whatever she could find she was just like I got it I got it and she grabbed some tissue paper and started going after it with me and I said I'm gonna run her to the bathroom which was of course the opposite corner of the store and so I kind of held her two feet away from me as I ran across with my four-year-old running behind me and into the bathroom and into the stall and I'm trying to figure out what to do and I hear more people in there like very nonchalantly there's some there yeah maybe we'll get it here too and I'm like oh no they're talking about my girls stripping through the entire store and I just I mean they were just very complacent about it just, we're just gonna clean this up and and I came out and someone's like oh was that your daughter and I was like please don't tell me everybody knows about this she's like no let me help you like give me just a minute and and then somebody else came in and said here's some underwear like do you want it and it wasn't just like here's some underwear for your daughter because I had forgot all my bags in the car and literally had to sorry I had to flush her underwear down the toilet in, her, in your store <laughs> They offered her two different types, and they said, which one do you like? And it wasn't just like they were offering her underwear. It's like this is something sweet to do for a two-year-old that just had an embarrassing moment is, is just feeling kind of probably down on herself mm -hmm. about it. And I was like, okay, what, what can I do? Can I come over? I'll come over there and pay for it real quick. And they're like, no, no. And I'm like, no, please, I, I will pay for it. I just forgot all my stuff downstairs. And she said, Mr. Nordstrom would be happy for us to do this for you. And she was just, she's like, we've all been there. You know, that several of us are moms. It's it's okay. And it just, I honestly felt like a bad mom in those 10 minutes. And having several people come up to me and say that just really made me feel like I was part of the mom worldwide community. And <laughs> people have gone through it before. Like you said, you have little kids. For me, I felt like a failure. And just to have so many people be so, everybody was just so sweet. It didn't matter what was going on. They were just like, we're going to help you and everything's cool. Yeah, that's such, again, a, a relatable story. And we, um, first of all, it made me really proud of our people because it's not in their job description, right? That, you know, we got to save the day for mom and a couple kids and a, a poop problem. You know, it's, yeah. but, but that's what we try to do. And so we use stuff like this as a positive example, reinforcement of this is what we're all about. If you want to kind of define what good service looks like, it's really told through the eyes of a customer in the time of need. So it was just an important message as a reminder to us. So I just want to let you know how much I appreciate you taking the time to share the story with us. Oh, you bet. I'm a loyal customer for sure now. Oh, I love it. That's, that's really good. 
Well, I appreciate that. And all my best to your daughters, your, your family. And, and again, thanks so much for being our customer. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, so now we gotta find Justin Leggett. Justin's one of our personal stylists, amazing salesperson, frankly. I mean, I'm not gonna tell you how much money that guy makes, but he makes a lot of money. He sells a lot of clothes. Hello, hello. Hey, Justin, Hi. let's sit down. Okay, yeah. perfect, great. So Justin, you know, really kind of interested you to talk a little bit about yourself. I know a little bit about mm -hmm. your background, where you come from, but you've been yeah. doing this for a while. So why don't you just kind of tell your, your story and your journey, how you've come to be where, where you are now. Well, starting out with Nordstrom, I started out at Stock in South Center. Then after like a year and a half, I didn't think I was cool enough to sell. I was too scared. <laughs> and so I was just, I did stock and I got there in the morning and just did it and worked random departments. And I ended up in the rail and we opened our store here downtown so I was part of the whole move so that, everything that's an interesting thing real quickly is that we've been downtown Seattle since 1901 but we've been in a couple of different locations and this is wow 20 something years ago yeah. we literally moved across the street and one night we had rolling racks going across it the was, store bringing clothes over so you were part of that I it was amazing I was hit with retail right then I mean it was hard work I remember that it was exciting and I was only allowed to run the elevator I sat in that elevator up and down all night, moving things over in the excitement. We had a huge thing and they gave us all keychains. It was huge. So this is 20 years ago and then you became a salesperson? And I became a salesperson. I started in kids shoes and all my relationships today are off the kids shoe floor. Now they're all getting married. They're all going off to schools. I'm fitting them for their first Hugo Boss suits. Their mothers are buying them. So fast forward to today, you're one of the top salespeople in our company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got this personal stylist thing. You've given kind of a lot of latitude to really kind of create your own business. But mm -hmm. I wanted you to talk a little bit about what that's like, in particular, like this last month or so has been a really busy and interesting time for you. Oh my goodness. So when I became successful at Nordstrom, instead of working for Nordstrom, I made Nordstrom work for me. <laughs> Literally, I use everything I can, you know, to make it wonderful and it's beneficial for all. And I'm a lifer here. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but but I knew that when I was a kid. So were you a customer as a kid? Uh, of course. We'd go to the Alderwood store, but there was a, what store was in, it's a Costco Aurora. Now. Aurora Village, Aurora Village, man. That's where I bought my first Ralph Lauren piece. I've always been hooked in Nordstrom, but yeah. you know, my saltwater sandals came from South Center. It's just stories, my life. And being here from Seattle, that's part of my cell. You know, when you talk to a woman that's shopped at Green Lake and has memories from Green Lake fitting her kids' shoes and it's being a hometown dude. Like, I don't sell clothes, I sell a feeling. So, I mean, I know you're not a name dropper and stuff, but mm -hmm. I, I saw a post that you had on mm -hmm. Instagram with one of your more high-profile customers. They're all high-profile. Yeah, I know they're uh -huh. no, they no, are. But you know what? They're, I have such a broad range of customers. Everybody thinks, oh, you have to be a certain kind to shop with me. And that's not true. So, but Yes, I was so, with her. With, a really cool one. You're not going to mention her? I don't mention I mean, okay, well, you, you never know. You know, I mean. Well, but you guys were on Instagram together. We were. Talk they about know. It, so it's they not know. a secret. Yeah, they know. Or I'm going to tell people. You can tell. So there's Instagram <laughs> of him helping Ciara mm -hmm. there in New York. And again, I, I do think that's so true about you that whoever it is that you're helping, you make them all feel great. Like yeah. they're a star. You treat everyone like they're awesome. And, yeah. But it is true that you also have the confidence of some of these people that I mean, the way they look is literally their livelihood and their yeah. business. And you service these people too. Yeah. And it's about relationship right there. So she's my friend and we take care of business, but you know, when you know somebody, it's like when somebody cuts your hair, you just love them. They come in, they do their job. You're comfortable and yeah. but keep you looking like you and it's trust. So you're a busy guy and really busy days. But at the end of a day, like what makes you feel like that was awesome? My best days at Nordstrom isn't about the volume. It's about how you made somebody feel by the little things. Right. How you made somebody's kid feel or how you showed some little kid to the bathroom while their mom's <laughs> trying some stuff on it, stood outside or running a package down. It's just the little things are making somebody feel pretty. You can feel it. People change in front of you. My favorite experience ever, it just happened. One of my, I don't have a favorite customer, but I have customers <laughs> that, that are long term and I know this family from kids shoes and... She recently got married, and the reason she went with her wedding planner is because I was around somebody who had a beautiful wedding. And I went, I knew for a fact this was what her parents needed, and her mother was sick. And 
probably wasn't gonna be there for her wedding. And I talked to her mother before she passed about, I found the guy for her wedding. Oh, so you, you connected her with the wedding planner? Of planet. course. And her dad sent me the most lovely email. At the wedding, I couldn't even, I, her mother would normally be there in an Oscar dress or in a, mm -hmm. you know, perfection. She was just missing her mom on that day. And it was the saddest day in my whole career, but the best day in my whole life. Because her dad, who I've been selling their kids Uggs to since yeah. they were in Christmas in their private school Mary Janes, his daughter was getting married in a beautiful, it was perfect, he didn't have to worry. And what he said, he said, my wife told me, everybody needs a Justin. That's great. And I just went, okay, I did my job. So in some ways, you know, you think about our times and just how all the societal issues and the cultural issues kind of get brought to bear in work and stuff too. And you mm -hmm. know, our whole thing is wanting people to be the best versions of themselves and everything. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this before, mm -hmm. but tell me about being kind of a person of color and well, I think growing up business, here in you know. Yes, I think growing up here in Seattle, I had a you know, in the last year and a half, two years, it's really opened my eyes to things that I'd even know. You know, and it made me sad that I'm in a bubble that a lot of people aren't in sometimes. And yeah, what do you mean by that? Sometimes I'm the only person of color in a room standing on stage being clapped at and you know, and that might be a problem. <laughs> I never knew it was a problem because I was there. Right. Sometimes I feel, I don't want to feel like this, but being the best accessory in Seattle. Yeah. But somebody told me, she said, you know what? And I was a little concerned about going somewhere and being that person and the only person in the room. Mm -hmm. First of all, I'm the only person of color and then I might be the only gay one in the room. So I'm feeling a certain way and I'm at this ta-ta wedding <laughs> and she said, Justin, you're in bubbles that really do, you affect it. You really do. And it's, it's your job to do that. Do it. Open doors. And I went, wow, I do have that. And there's no holding back for me anymore. There's room for me and I want to be a game changer. And that just goes back to when you become successful at Nordstrom, instead of working for Nordstrom, which I do, but Nordstrom actually works for me too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, such a great point. I mean, the most successful people I've seen here mm -hmm. have figured out how to make it about them. It's their business. Yes. And we're providing the infrastructure Completely. to enable that business to happen. Completely. The name on the building is Nordstrom, but what they think about is Justin. That's Lager. right. I love it. Hey, Justin, I really appreciate you. You're great at your job and you make customers you. happy. And thank you for that. Thank you for letting me be Justin here. <laughs> you got it. Yes. Thank Thanks, you. Bud. Have a good day. See you. All care. right. Well, that's the show. Episode number one of the Nordy Pod is now in the can. And I have to say, I had a pretty good time doing it. And I hope you had just as good of a time listening to it. And more than that, I hope you will join us for all of our future episodes. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so that other people can find this thing. You can find us on the web at Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast. And that's one word, N-O-R-D-Y P-O-D-C-A-S-T, where you can listen to episodes, find out more about the show, and get involved. In fact, I would love to hear from you directly. You can send me an email and ask me anything, make a comment, offer suggestions, tell me a story, or whatever else is on your mind to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also call and leave a voicemail, and I might just call you back and you can be on a future episode of the show. That number is... 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop me a line. Give me a call and be part of the Nordy Pod. And most importantly, be sure to tune into our next episode when I introduce you to my younger brother, Eric, the CEO of Nordstrom, and my cousin, Jamie, the full line store president. Listen in as we go deep into family history, office politics, and talk about addressing all the current challenges facing retailers in 2022. There was a lot of situations where I would get kind of irrationally nervous about people knowing my last name because I didn't want people to, you know, come up with this thing in their mind about, well, he must be like this. It struck me right after college, a handful of employees, you know, they went out for a beer after work and they invited me along. And I, I was talking to him, I thought was the coolest guy in the department. 
He says, you know, when I heard a Nordstrom was coming down to work here, I thought you would be an asshole. <laughs> but you know what? You're not an asshole. Well, thank you. That might have been the nicest compliment <laughs> you ever a, got. That's a nice compliment. I got to say, it's a refreshingly honest conversation that gets pretty real. And I actually learned some stuff about my brother and my cousin that I did not know. So I really look forward to sharing that with you. And I think you're going to love it. So please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.